Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Washington, D.C., your nation's capital. I am very pleased to be joined today by a distinguished group of people who can help us solve a big problem, which I will frame in one moment. Among that distinguished group, we have Mara Rudman, who's the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Center for American Progress. Hi, Mara, how are you? I'm good, thanks, and good to see you. Good to see you. We also are joined by Waj Ali, who is a columnist at uh, the Daily Beast, which is as high a position as one can hold in this world, and uh, also has his own podcast, which I really don't want to recommend to all of you because it's probably better than this one because he is smart and funny. How you doing? I'm good. My parents came from Pakistan so I could become a columnist at the Daily Beast. That that was the that was the goal. And the I American dream. <laughs> you, you could do worse. And uh, from the Washington Post and a regular and friend here, we have E.J. Dion. How are you today, E.J.? Lovely to be with you all. It's a beautiful day here. I was thinking walking around how beautiful it is here compared to what happened yesterday to our friends down in Florida. Just a reminder of life's unfairnesses. It, it, it is. And it's. I hope we wish them all speedy recovery. Apparently, judging from the news, in order to get that, you have to pay tribute to Ron DeSantis with every time you speak to a TV camera. But uh, we won't dwell on that because that seems petty. Rather, (laughs) I would like to dwell on something else. And that is that the election is a few weeks away, an election that could literally mean whether we, you know, continue with democracy in America or not. And I'm not feeling it, you know, like. I'm, you know, doom scrolling on Twitter like everybody else and watching TV and even like appearing on TV talking about stuff. But I feel like there's always something other than the election that we're talking about, whether it's a hurricane or war in Ukraine or, uh, you know, the latest Trump legal shenanigans or, or whatever. 
and you know maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. Uh, you know, people were pretty riled up about uh, the Dobbs decision in June, and I've seen some indications that maybe they're not as riled up anymore. And so the question is, what must be done in order to get people to focus on this and move in the direction that they need to move on? I mean, what what are the messages that leaders, particularly leaders on the Democratic side of the aisle, need to get out there to get an outcome that keeps us somehow from descending into anti-democratic morass that could lead in bad places. Mara, what do you think? I think there are a series of messages that people need to hear, and it's not just messages. They need to, to see results, and we have real opportunities. I actually, but I think those things are not about talking about the election per se. It's showing how government works and works for people and how democratic governments work. So looking at economic democracy as a place to start. I've talked with, with you, David, before when we had these three major economic pieces of legislation in various states of churning that we now have, the combination of the Infrastructure, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Chips and Science Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act are transformative for the United States, for people in the United States, for the kinds of jobs we have, for the kind of world that we live in, if and as properly executed. So being able to talk about that now is very important. Being able to show the results of it is tremendously important. And as is doing work on building safe and just communities, and we have steps forward on that, tough and halting at times, but with the major piece of legislation that uh, Senator Murphy shepherded through the Senate this summer as a start, we have ways of talking about the concerns on guns and gun violence and steps forward for what we can do about it. And I shouldn't put this at the end of the list because the impact of the Dobbs decision is profound for a lot of different people, not only for women and not only for people who feel very strongly about the right of individual freedoms with respect to some of the most challenging decisions people make, but also what it means to have a court that's willing to dismantle fundamental freedoms. And so all of those things, I think, will weigh heavily on people. I think there are various folks working hard in each of those substantive areas. And it's part of showing how democracy delivers. And at the same time, sorry, one last thing is making sure that uh, the legislation that has strong bipartisan support at this point, the Electoral Count Act, gets done, gets through. Not a minor thing in terms of, of preserving the integrity of uh, the election process as well. Very helpful. Waj, if you could take the American public and hold them in your hands and shake them gently, not, not in a violent way, what would you say? I would say eat some fiber. You need fiber. I said drink some chai. I said save some money. <clears throat> Excuse me, yeah. I'm just getting over it. And I would cough in their face and give them the virus that I have right now. And then I would say get vaccinated. What I would say is the following. Republicans are coming after your freedoms. Republicans are coming after democracy. I am the brown Cassandra that you won't listen to. I'm the brown Paul Revere who will try to warn you, but you'll probably shoot from the horse. So listen to Mara and EJ instead, and, and David. They're more friendly and mainstream and, and American. If you don't believe me, take them literally and seriously. They came after abortion rights. They're telling you they're coming after contraceptives. They're telling you they're coming after marriage equality. Look at January 6th. They're telling you they're coming after voting rights. 
listen to them when they say they want this country to be a Christian nationalist country. The polls say, oh, my people who I'm gently shaking in a bear hug, that the number one issue right now is that you want the defense of democracy. You're terrified the democracy won't hold. Well, guess who's going to defend democracy? Democrats. Guess who's coming after democracy? Republicans. They told us that abortion was not a kitchen table issue. What's the number two issue that everyone cares about right now? Abortion rights, women rights. What will Democrats do? If you give us the Senate and the House, we will codify Roe v. Wade. We will protect marriage equality, right? We've also given you student loan debt relief. We've given you CHIPS Act. We've given you Inflation Reduction Act. What are the policies that Republicans are proposing for this you know, inflation and income inequality? They're coming after Social Security and Medicare. And what Biden did just a couple of days ago was very smart. I've been wanting them to do this for a while. He literally read Rick Scott's plan. Where they're talking about within five years, they're going to come after Social Security and Medicare. So I'm, I'm going to tell them that Republicans are coming after your freedoms. Democrats, we're trying to protect your freedoms and we're trying to uplift all Americans. And then what I do is with the one month that I have left with the House, because they're most likely going to lose the House. But let's see. I would do hearings. I would not just do one hearing. I would do a hearing that was postponed because of this terrible hurricane. And, you know, we, I have family in Florida as well. It's, it's terrible. We hope that it's good to see that Biden and the rest of the country does not revisit the cruelty of Republicans. Whereas if you remember, DeSantis voted against aid when he was in the House and Donald Trump said only my supporters get the A plus treatment. He gave the A treatment to Alabama, completely forgot my home state of California. Good to see that Biden is kind and generous as is helping that state. It's a playbook from what the Republicans did in that in 2015, Kevin McCarthy openly admitted that Republicans did the hearings on Benghazi and emails to hurt Hillary Clinton leading up to the 2016 election. Guess what? It worked. In this case, it's not bullshit. There is just an awesome, just daily outpouring of criminality coming forward from the Republican Party, Democrats, uh, excuse me, MAGA, Donald Trump and his, and his allies. So I would use the House and build up this case because we're Americans, we have the memories of Nats. Leading up to the election, it can sway just enough people, David. I think it could sway enough independents to, that say, you know what? I haven't voted for Democrat in a while, but if my choice is between Democrats and this guy, Herschel Walker and Doug Mastriano, I'll go for the Democrats. And it's, it's an election, as you know, in the, in the, in the purple states, oh, it's always going to be in the margins. That's just 2%, 3% here or there. So I would double down with that message relentlessly for the next month. Do not take anything for granted. Don't trust the polls. And you might be able to pull off an upset in the House and you might be able to keep the Senate. That's what I would do. Excellent. Personally, I don't think there's a kitchen appliance I wouldn't vote for ahead of Herschel Walker or Mastriano. But uh, people, we, we do have to consider that people may not come at this from my perspective. What do you say, EJ? You know, two things. Those choices remind me of one of Joe Biden's favorite lines. Don't compare me to the almighty. Compare me to the alternative. And in many of these races, not just those well-known ones where it's particularly striking and got to mention J.D. Vance in Ohio in that list. But in so many races down the ballot, there are extremists on the ballot. The other thing is we'll know the Democrats are winning the election when Rick Scott's plan is better known than the NFL, the NBA, and the World Series schedules combined. I think we're going to hear more about Rick Scott, that plan, Social Security and Medicare between now and the election, than an awful lot of other issues. I think we got to parse it, and maybe I've been around politics too long. 
I think there is a chunk of the electorate that broadly, and a significant part of the electorate that broadly agrees with the argument we're making here that democracy is on the ballot, that the threat of uh, Republicans at this moment in our history is sufficiently great that even if you don't like everything the Democrats say, it matters to defeat them this year. And there's a lot of evidence for that, particularly in uh, who's going to take over state and local governments and manage our future elections. And I think that is hurting Republicans in places where that's very obvious, Pennsylvania being near the top of that list, but it's happening elsewhere. And I do think it's really good that people are finally paying attention to secretary of state races all over the country. So I think there's a big chunk of the electorate that is worried about that. And the important thing there is a mobilizing message that it really matters that you vote. And I think the tightening of the polls, whatever is actually happening out there, is helpful in that respect, because suddenly a whole lot of people say, hey, wait a minute, this election can actually be won. I think that actually makes a difference. I think there is a second group of voters that may not be fully persuaded yet that the democracy is at risk, and they might not see that unless the Republicans did particularly take the House and do some of the things they are threatening to do, like try, in some cases, try to shut down the investigations of Donald Trump. I think there, it's very important for Democrats not to let the bread and butter issues be defined by the Republicans as inflation, inflation, and Biden is terrible at governing. And that's where I think some of the stuff they've done, uh, particularly on cost of uh, prescription drugs and on student loans and in other areas where they have a real story to tell. And I think young, young voters are absolutely critical to the Democrats. When you look at the polling, if large numbers of people under 45 and, and under 30 don't vote, Democrats lose. And that's where I think having acted on the climate really matters. You saw an awful lot of disillusionment among younger voters, even a couple of months ago. I think now there is a case that can be made that hey, these things got done and there's more that can be done. And so I think it's got to be divided. And then to go all the way back to where we started, some of these opponents ought to make it easy for Democrats to win some of these races. I remember a New Yorker cartoon, I think it may have been New Yorker, it may have been somewhere else during a debate, Al Gore having the thought balloon, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. And I think some of the Democrats in these races, when they look like they're running behind some of these candidates, have that thought balloon in their head. And I think the quality of the candidates, not only in the big Senate races, but in some of these House races, is going to matter. Don't question the quality of candidates and the quality of the overall effort. All of you guys have mentioned core points to make, some of them policy points, some of them points that cut the visceral issues. Will democracy survive? Are our rights being pared away? Are these people dangerous extremists? But then, you know, the, the, there is this issue of is the message getting out there? And again, I don't want to seem petty, although I will be accused of it. But, you know, Ron DeSantis is taking a giant natural disaster and turning it into a campaign opportunity. I mean, his wife appeared at a press conference this morning as, you know, uh, you know leading the charge on this thing. And there are all these people out there saying, gosh, he's a great governor. And it's the middle of a campaign. 
Do I think it's cynical? Yes. But I also realize that they never miss an opportunity to drive home their core message, no matter how cynical it may be. With the Democrats, I'm not sure I'm getting that sense of urgency. How do you evaluate the way Democratic leaders have driven home the messages you're talking about, Mara? I actually think that that they have been doing driving home of those messages. I also think that there is a challenge, though, in the calendar, and this goes back to what was suggested earlier about what we do in October with hearings, because people need to get home to home districts, and there's a huge push to do that, to be able to talk about the things that are really important, to get the messages out, to convince people at home, in their states, in their districts, on what's happening and what's so important. And so there, there's definitely some, some tension in what the national message is and being able to get home as well. Schumer, Pelosi, Hakeem Jeffries, others in both House and Senate are doing a lot, as well as the White House, in putting front and center the changes in climate, the differences, that, the importance of college affordability, the student debt decision, but more work in college affordability the significant opportunities with prescription drugs that are packaged within uh, the legislation that, that has gone through, as well as the opportunities to, to significantly enhance jobs and good jobs and quality jobs throughout the country. I see those messages as being hammered home considerably. And I do think that while a number of people in the country clearly show that they are concerned about democracy and the threats to democracy, people will vote based on the much more on the immediate either opportunities or, or threats that they're seeing. And so we may disagree on that, David. I, I, there's, there's some point at which you can, there's a way that I would look at it and say, like, there is no messaging from the White House and uh, the House and the Senate that will be that I have a very, very high bar, would want to constantly have consistent messaging, but, but I would give them pretty good grades. But I also think they need to get home to districts to be able to be talking and, and working there. I don't disagree strongly with that. I just have had this sort of vague sense that the election doesn't seem like it's right around the corner. You know, it just doesn't, you know, and, and it is right around the corner. I agree. I think they're pretty urgent about it. And one thing I didn't mention, it's frightening for the Republic, but it'll put it on people's minds. The Supreme Court is coming back to town next week. And I think that is an opportunity to raise again some of the issues that they raised with some outlandish partisan decisions, not only on abortion rights, but also on the environment and to look back at some of the things they've done on voting rights. And so I think that's a big deal. I think there is urgency. And I think some of what you're seeing now is early in the year, everybody wrote off the Democrats' chances of doing anything. We were looking at some kind of a 1994 Republican landslide. That went too far. And then suddenly after Roe got knocked down and after Biden had his successes, then there was a massive correction where everyone was saying, you know, hey, wait a minute, that's all wrong. Democrats can win this thing. And I think that produced a kind of democratic euphoria. Now you're having a bit of a reaction to that euphoria where people are saying, yeah, Democrats are better off than they were, but this is a really, really tough election. And I think that's where we are now. 
Here's where I sort of have some urgency that I think we're starting to see, but haven't seen yet, which is pushing back against some of the Republican attacks and turning them around. I had the great pleasure of uh, talking to uh, Mara's colleague, Navi Nayak, who's done enormous work. I wrote my column about it that's up today. Enormous amount of work on how to push back on crime and not let the Republicans or conservatives own the crime issue. And there is a lot to be said here. Uh, uh, Democrats do have to acknowledge people are concerned about crime. This is not a made up issue. Crime rates aren't what they were in the 1990s, but certain kinds of crime are up. And there's no point arguing with the electorate about whether crime is up or not. The question is, what do you do about it? And yes, people want those who commit crime to be held accountable, but they also want crime to be prevented. And they really, really disagree with Republicans in blocking sane gun laws. And I think there's an enormous potential to go on offense on crime. Similarly, on the economy, probably examples from abroad are not always persuasive in American elections. But boy, are we getting an interesting lesson in uh, trickle-down economics from our friends in Britain and Prime Minister Liz Truss, who has put through this big tax cut that is tanking the British economy, tanking the Conservative Party. There was a poll that came out this week that Labour was ahead by 17 points now. They haven't had a lead like that. And so a warning of yeah, these guys talk a lot about the economy, but the policies they propose are not good for working people. And they're probably not great. If you look at Britain, they're not good for the economy at all. And so I think there's a need to go aggressive on the issues that Democrats are defensive on. Yeah, they've definitely gone from trickle down to down the drain economics as we approach dollar pound parity. Watch, you wrote a column, one column ago, I think, that really um, resonated with me is it's been something I've been saying and writing about for five or six years now, which is that the far right is an actual legitimate threat to our national security. And it manifests itself in a variety of ways. It manifests itself in Trump and those around Trump ties to Putin. It manifests itself in the hard right extremist right. And a couple of things are coming up during this period between now and the election that could drive that message home. One is we've got at least one more hearing of the January 6th committee. And another is that the Stuart Rhodes trial, the leader of the one of these extremist groups is taking place. How do you think, you know, what would you like to see from the January 6th committee? What would you like to see from the way that people pick up on the, the Rhodes trial? I mean, what I'd like to see is an investigation of Ginny and Clarence Thomas. I'm, I'm amazed that still hasn't happened. And, you know, people say, well, you know, it's Ginny and Clarence Thomas, you know, it's Supreme Court justice. I mean, I always imagine what would happen if the Republicans were in this position right now? We already know they're telling you they're, it's going to be Hunter Biden's laptop, Joe Biden. We saw Hillary Clinton's emails it was all bullshit, but it worked in this situation. We have enough information, just the stuff that we know, right, that's been reported in the Washington Post and New York Times of these people within Trump's inner circle, Republicans, the ones who are invited to give speeches, people like Rudy Giuliani and people like Roger Stone and even Ginny Thomas in her own texts, openly supporting a violent insurrection and after the fact trying to use their power and influence to get Arizona and Wisconsin lawmakers to adopt this BS legal theory, which 
The Supreme Court that you mentioned might give a green light to the independent state legislature theory, uh, This uh, this theory, which is terrifying. The, the case that terrifies me is more v. Harper. And taking back to something what Mara was saying is there's a good opening here where Mitch McConnell even, you have bipartisan support for the Electoral Account Act to pass it. That's huge because when the Supreme Court comes back, you already have at least four votes, most likely five, to rubber stamp this coup in search of a legal theory that was promoted by John Eastman, right? A, a quick aside for that. But what I want, and I'm kind of, I share this with you, is I think Democrats can still do more. They can still punch harder, right? When Joe Biden comes out and says semi-fascism, you know, America's like, how dare he say semi-fascism? I'm like, uh, he was wrong. It's fascism. But then you saw the base get riled up. And then, you know, he gave an olive branch, which I think was very smart politically. I know not all Republicans are like this. This isn't your daddy's Republicans party. And there's some Republicans who are terrified by this. Come over and join us. However, MAGA represents a direct threat to the Constitution and the democracy. So I want that type of messaging. I want words like fascism, national security threat, direct threat to our Constitution. And what you were saying, David, it coincides beautifully with the Stuart Rhodes trial, the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, and the fact that Republicans like Secretary of State Mark Fincham in Arizona is a, an open Oath Keeper member, ladies and gentlemen. Right? He's not Secretary of State yet. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> He's running for Secretary of State, Arizona, running for Secretary of State. Mark Fincham was at January 6th, promotes the big lie, is an open admitted proud member of the Oath Keepers, a right-wing hate group that tried to organize the coup that left five people dead. So it's one of the situations where the Republicans, and, and I hate saying this, are, are giving these gifts to Democrats. Like they're so extreme that like, these are just manna from heaven. Sometimes all you have to do, though, is if you don't tell the story, no one knows. And so you need people like Biden and Harris and even those who can afford it, I would say. And I said this a couple of months ago. Gavin Newsom needs to come out and say it because he's in California. He's safe, right? Eric Swalwell, for example. I would even say Jamie Raskin. Some of these messengers who are in safe seats, very progressive seats, who aren't necessarily in the purple states, those guys can come out and hit really hard. Warren, AOC. And you saw that, that when they did it against DeSantis, when they, when they did it when it comes to abortion rights, it galvanizes the base. They get on mainstream news. People talk about it. So this is where I think there's an opening in the next month and I do think there's a month is a long time in America. Like we forget stuff that happens a week ago. If you double down in October leading up to the midterms on this narrative, Republicans are coming after abortion rights. We're going to save abortion rights. Republicans are coming after Social Security and Medicare, a topic that I still don't think they're talking about enough. We're going to protect Social Security and Medicare. Republicans are coming after your freedoms. We're going to protect your freedoms. Republicans are coming after democracy. It's a fascist threat. We're going to protect democracy. We want accountability. Here's law and order. Here are these investigations. Here's the hearings. Here's what we demand. You have a stark contrast where you get to paint the villain, the bad guy, and you create a narrative that says what you're for. And I do believe you can galvanize enough different segments of the community. Social Security, Medicare, you'll get a seniors. Women's rights, hopefully you'll get everyone, but especially women. Student loan debt, climate change, you'll get the youth, right? Speak about law and order and accountability, you get the majority, you get the independence, plus the stuff that they've already done. Hammer it down relentlessly and call out the Republican Party as a party of extremism. Use that type of language relentlessly and then give enough examples. Herschel Walker, Doug Mastriano, Trump, Roger Stone, Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, Mark Fincham, Oath Keepers, on and on and on. And I think you can turn the tide just enough 
you know, again, I think maybe they can hold on to the house. Why not? Maybe. That's the optimist in me. I think it's not just about messaging. I think it is the reality that the MAGA extremists are direct threats to our national security. I, I think you're saying and agreeing that. But I also think for that message to get out, it's not, uh, yes, it's the importance of, of the base hearing it, but the large middle of the country is very concerned about threats to our national security and how and making the links that it is all the things happening at home, the deep friendship with fascist leaders under the guise of democracy in Hungary with, with um, Orban, as well as with Putin. You look at what just happened in Sweden with the elections and what in Italy exactly this week. This is, it is a threat at home. It's a threat around the world. These folks, the, the kind of radical extremists, what we see as the MAGA extremists here are allied, not just in the United States. And it is a threat to the entire world as well as to the United States position in the world. And that is a message that really, and a reality that is deeply concerning to many, many people in this country, I would say across the political spectrum. And I actually do believe that there are a number of Republicans who are concerned and, and do not see the MAGA extremists as them. I don't think it's just an olive branch by President Biden. I think it's the reality. And so getting out to as many people as possible in as many ways as you can, the, the deep nature of this threat to our country, to me, is critically important. Yeah, and I underscore, by the way, that Mara's background is in national security, as is mine. And so when you see these things, this is not a casual statement. Right now, the greatest direct national security threat we face is domestic. Right. Uh, and, it's, and it's time to mention it. And Which Jim Mattis, by the way, said years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Which, just, yeah, the FBI has I'm been saying for quite a long And I'm not time. crazy because Mara and David agreed with me. Thank you. That's all. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody thinks you're crazy. Well, not about that. We'll come back in, in, in one moment. This is the halfway, half an hour point of the pod. And when we say to those of you who are joining in the general public, thanks for joining us and become a member. Go to dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. And for just a couple of bucks a month, you can help support what we're doing and hear the rest of each one of these podcasts. For those of you who are members, and we are glad that you number in the thousands, hang on and we'll continue this discussion in one moment. <laughs> 